in the mid-2000s, Dennis Blanton was on an archaeological treasure hunt. He was looking for the site of an old Spanish mission that was thought to be near McRae, Georgia. And we toiled away for some time and didn't find the first Spanish artifact. Not one. Then one day, a high schooler who was doing a summer program on the dig summoned him to her digging spot. I walked over, and she unfurled her fingers, and in the palm of her hand was this beautiful, multicolored glass bead. How do I explain this rarest of artifacts in a place that we never expected to find? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we're digging into the past. Dennis Blanton is my first guest. He's an archaeology professor at James Madison University and the author of Conquistador's Wake, tracking the legacy of Hernando de Soto in the indigenous Southeast. He explains the legacy of Hernando de Soto, one of the first Europeans to travel in many parts of the American Southeast. Soto first arrived in the New World as a teenager, and when he was about 14 years old. Uh, and this would have been in the area we know today as Panama. And it was there that he learned to be a conquistador. Now, he's described as the consummate horseman. He was a skilled warrior. And that attracted the attention of the Pizarros, particularly Francisco Pizarro. And they thought, this is the kind of guy we want on our expedition to South America, where we intend to challenge the Inca and overthrow their empire. And Soto was there, uh, acting really as the right-hand man, as it were, to Francisco Pizarro. And part of his uh, exploits there involved uh, being um, a diplomat, as it were. He was a go-between and uh, spent a lot of time with the Inca king, trying to persuade him to cooperate uh, with the Spanish. And um, ultimately, the, the king was murdered and um, the Spanish took rooms full of gold and silver away from the Inca. Soto got a huge portion of that, went back to Spain, a fabulously wealthy man, and by all rights had no reason to do anything else for the rest of his life. But he was one of these, I, I think, you know, driven type A people. Uh, he was sort of restless. And uh, he had heard these rumors, right, of uh, the same sort of possibilities in North America that there'd been in South America. And he decided to pursue his own expedition. So what year did he re-arrive in the Americas? And which states did he lead this massive force through? Soto first landed in uh, the southeastern United States in uh, what we now the state of Florida, almost certainly in the area of Tampa Bay. This would have been the summer of 1539. And he was accompanied by over 600 people, mostly men, and uh, at least 250 horses, and eventually an untold number of pigs, (laughs) (laughs) and a tremendous quantity of gear, and off they went in search of these riches. In a lot of ways, also information. They were sort of gathering intelligence on the behalf of the government of Spain about this part of the New World, which is still very poorly known. He thinks he's going to find gold, jewels, silver? Oh, of course, yes. There were rumors. So where did his path take him? He went on a circuitous route over a fairly short amount of time, but through which present-day states? After landing in Florida and over the course of several years, Soto wandered northward through today's states of Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. And then he turned back south through Tennessee, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, eventually went as far west as Texas and turned around. (laughs) And then by 1542, he had become ill and I think demoralized and uh, eventually died there. Uh, I would say probably a broken man. Uh, He was not successful at all in finding riches. And um, upon his death, the survivors, and only about 50% of the original numbers survived. They chose first to bury him in the ground in more or less traditional fashion. 
Then they thought better of it. They didn't want the Indians to uh, desecrate the body. They also didn't want the Indians to even know about his death. Uh, and so they, they exhumed him and uh, then took his, his body out into the Mississippi River, weighted it down, and dropped it into the water. And that's where it still is today. How would you characterize his progress, his march, his ambling from one state to the other, from one land to the other, and encountering the local people as he went? DeSoto learned how to run this expedition uh, by virtue of his experiences in South America. So we understood sort of that old adage that uh, an army travels on its stomach. And he knew where the food was. And he also knew that if there were riches in the country, it would be in the Indian towns along with the food. And so as quickly as possible, he was moving down established trails from Indian village to Indian village, ideally from the largest Indian town to the next largest Indian town. And along the way, he would pause. Every winter, in fact, he would pause for usually two or three months. And there was a, a, a winter encampment. They would uh, regroup, strategize, and things of that nature before continuing on. But there were, it, it, there were days when uh, it was nonstop marching, and then there would be a brief pause of two or three days. But it all depended on the reception from the Indians. It depended on the promise of the territory depended on rumors of what lay ahead. There are all kinds of factors that determine their, their pace of march and the direction of march. You write that many of the Native people received him with generosity. They did. Uh, they did. I think um, one of the reasons was, first of all, it was customary to uh, treat uh, guests, I think, um, uh, in, a, in a considerate sort of way. But uh, by the same token, we also believe that it was a way of, of getting the Spanish out of their hair as quickly as possible. It, there's more than one account where the natives said, okay, we know what you want. We don't have it. But those people down the road have got the gold and the silver, <laughs> which would be a reason for DeSoto and his, uh, his merry band to hustle along and leave their territory. And it seemed to have worked much of the time. He was sometimes cruel to the indigenous scouts that he grabbed to guide him through this territory. Oh, the, the brutality associated with it was, uh, it was appalling. And, you know, sometimes you read uh, these accounts and it, it's hard to imagine. And you try to process it in your own mind and you think it could never have been so brutal. But uh, I, I think it probably was. It was it was the way and some of the things that they were were doing that were especially brutal was, uh, you know, taking captives, resorting to torture uh, they had these vicious, large dogs that were trained uh, in, in the art of war themselves and, more to the point, were trained to take down people, uh, which they did use that way. They took many, many, many uh, Native American captives as burden bearers. They're very clear that uh, one of the things they did was to chain these captives together, you know, for the march. And so, uh, certainly by the standards of our day, it would have been uh, you know, beyond the pale. But speaking of, you know, these young uh, Indian guides, they were critical, you know, to the expedition because you have to remember this land was completely unfamiliar to the Spanish. And uh, they would sometimes befriend and sometimes coerce, sometimes a little of both. These people, you know, who had the knowledge to lead them through the, through the countryside. You were part of a dig site in Georgia because you very much wanted to find an early Spanish mission that you knew was not far away. The Spanish had an extensive missions uh, network in the southeastern United States. Not many people are aware of it. When we think of Spanish missions, we tend to uh, think of California. We tend to think of New Mexico and Arizona and places like that. But the same sort of thing existed in the Southeast on an equal scale. But um, 
This was one, though, that had existed uh, in the area that I grew up in Georgia. And I'd even traipsed around the countryside trying to find it myself. And that was my playground, you know, even as a young person, to look for these these places that were historically important, whether they were Spanish missions or Native American villages. But uh, certainly then I never found the mission. So the opportunity as a professional to pursue it was something I couldn't turn down. And our strategy was to look at as many Native American sites as we could that had the right kinds of artifacts. Now, if you're going to find a Spanish mission, the first order of business is to find an appropriate Native American town because those were the places the missions were established. If you're going to uh, have a flock, so to speak, as a missionary, you've got to go to them. They're unlikely to come to you. And we toiled away for some time and didn't find the first Spanish artifact, not a one. So we had a group of high school students helping, and one of them was a young woman named Ellen Vaughn. She was very quiet and reserved, uh, but one day she actually summoned me over to see something she had found, and what she asked was, is this anything important? I walked over, and she unfurled her fingers, and in the palm of her hand was this beautiful, multicolored glass bead. And I knew immediately two things about it. One was, it was not from this area. In fact, it had most likely been made near Venice, Italy in the 16th century. And number two, it was much too old for the Spanish mission that we were looking for. So all of a sudden, I had a, a bit of a quandary, and that was, how do I explain this rarest of artifacts uh, in a place that we never expected to find it? All of a sudden, I, I began to ask myself, could we have actually found a Hernando de Soto site? And this was something that uh, some of my predecessors had spent uh, a career searching for with nothing to show for it. And so here, uh, down there at this little Indian village in southern uh, Georgia, we have evidence uh, serendipitously discovered that might have been uh, very important in refining the story of the conquistador. Why would they have had these little beads? The Spanish understood that to get what they want is they had to do business with the indigenous people. And doing business meant offering them things that uh, would, have, would have been valuable or attractive. And in the Indian world, uh, any object made of glass or any object made of iron was something that was very unfamiliar and would have been very attractive. And so in the baggage of this Spanish expedition were uh, crates of glass beads. There were crates of iron tools, very simple iron tools, that were carried along only for the purpose of exchanging with the Indian people. And what that exchange would get the Spanish uh, would be information about where gold and silver might be. It would get them information about what lay ahead. It would be uh, something they could exchange for food and the like. So it was very important part of the, the overall strategy on the part of the Spanish. So in effect, for people like me, uh, they're the calling cards of one of these expeditions. And if we want to find the proverbial smoking gun, it's in the form of these beautiful glass beads, or it's in the form of these very simple iron tools. Years later, when you wrote Conquistador's Wake, what did you want to help us understand about this period in American history? This period of history, it's vital. If we think about uh, the story of, of North America, we think about the story of this entire hemisphere, in fact, this is the opening chapter, and the beginning of any story is very uh, critical. And uh, the problem, though, that it confronts all of us is that the records that we have in terms of the, the documentation of this early period is very poor. We have uh, information, but it's sketchy, and so it leaves us with this dim, dim picture of what the situation was like on the ground. 
And so it's really left to archaeology to fill that picture out. And so my goal was to contribute some of the necessary detail to the telling of this story. The story is nothing less, really, uh, than the beginning of the modern world. It's really the first chapter in the modern world story. And we talk today an awful lot about a globalized world. Well, this is when it started. This is when uh, Europeans began to leave their continent, explore and settle in other parts of the world. And it's a legacy that we still live with today. So it has tremendous bearing on uh, everything that followed from those uh, 16th century events. This is fascinating. Dennis Blanton, thank you for sharing your knowledge and insights on With Good Reason. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Dennis Blanton is an archaeology professor at James Madison University. His book on DeSoto is Conquistador's Wake, tracking the legacy of Hernando de Soto in the indigenous Southeast. Along the Stanton River in Virginia, Brian Bates and his students have been exploring a dig site known as The Cove. More than 10,000 items found at The Cove tell us a story about the Saponi Indians who lived there a thousand years ago and perhaps used the spot as a fishing camp. Brian Bates is an anthropology professor at Longwood University. Brian, how long have you and your students at Longwood been excavating land that's called the Cove? We've been working at the Cove for about four years altogether. Uh, We have a great partnership with a a local gentleman named Ward Burton. Ward is a retired NASCAR uh, driver and a local fellow from the the area uh, where the Cove is located. And just been a fantastic partnership between he and I to to help us uh, do the do the things we're doing to understand the prehistoric past of this area. Tell me where the cove is and why the two of you want to know more about the prehistoric life there. Sure, the the cove is located in in southern Virginia, not too very far from the the North Carolina Virginia state line, maybe about twenty miles away from that. Uh, it's along a, a river called the Stanton River. Uh, it runs through, uh, in Virginia, what's called the sort of the Piedmont region, nice rolling hills and gentle gentle slopes. It is a, about a nine-mile-long, very sharp bend in the river. It's an absolutely noticeable landform. Uh, you can see it easily on places, on things like Google Earth. It's reasonable to me to think that it stood out in the past to people as well. Uh, and so it may be one reason why the, the Saponi Indians uh, may have used the area at the cove. Tell me about the Saponi people. What have you learned about them? Well, the, the Saponi Indians are a contemporary tribe. Uh, they they have a, a tribal center in a little community called Virgilina, which is on the Virginia-North Carolina state line. Uh, many of the Saponi today live between there and Roxborough, North Carolina. Uh, I've been partnering with the Saponi on research in this region uh, since the late 1990s. Uh, they're, they've been wonderful partners uh, as we seek to understand uh, their past. Uh, we know that the Saponi were living in this, this part of Virginia uh, in the 1670s because there's European explorers who, who report that they encountered Saponi. Uh, and my research is, is indicating that the Saponi were certainly in the area at least 500 or, or more years before then. What are you finding from the site where you're working? We are finding a lot of stone tools. We're finding the arrowheads that they're that they're using for for hunting, and presumably these are small enough they could have been fishing with them as well, uh, spear fishing. Uh, we're finding a lot of pottery uh, that is really quite interesting and dynamic, uh, and it, it's consistent with the kinds of pottery we think people were, were making and using in the period of around a thousand A.D. There's almost certainly a fishing camp there. Uh, spawning runs would have been a, a rich time of resource gathering where you can get the, the fish resources that can sustain you uh, in times when there's uh, less food available. And the one site that we've worked so far at the Cove is really indicative of a fishing camp. They're not living there long term. Just downriver, about eight miles, uh, I've been working 
on a, a site that was a major Saponi settlement called the Wade site. And if you have a large population living in a village, you need to always be figuring out where you're going to get your food. The fish spawning run, uh, which would have been in March and April, you'd have fish like American shad, uh, striped bass, who are coming in from the Atlantic Ocean on their spawning run. I think a party of folks would leave the Wade site, go upriver to the cove, where there's a narrow spot in the river that is a natural funnel that the fish would have to go through as they move upriver. It, it, it creates something called a fishing weir where Indians would gather fish in these weirs, harvest out the big ones, and let the little ones go. I suspect that exact same thing is happening at, at the cove, and they're gathering in those fish, which they'll then, they'll then dry or smoke, and they'll otherwise preserve them so that they can have them uh, for a food resource. And, of course, the springtime, particularly in March, by then people have got exhausted the food supply that they uh, stored up for the winter, and the pressure's really on until the time when uh, you know, warmer weather and more food resources became available. What have you found that's excited you? We have found some really interesting things that suggest that the Saponi Indians are not an isolated culture in the southern part of Virginia. They're a dynamic culture engaging with cultures from all over the southeast. We have found one of the more exciting finds to me is we have found some shell artifacts that when we sourced them as to where that shell actually lived its life, uh, these shell artifacts came from the Gulf of Mexico. Well, the Gulf of Mexico is uh, 1,100 miles away at a time when the uh, average person is probably uh, born, lives, and dies in about a 30 or 40-mile radius. So these are artifacts that are coming across long distances, which tells me that the Saponi are engaging with these cultures. They're engaging with people over long distance. Uh, They're not an isolated backwater culture. They're a very dynamic culture. What kind of shell? It was a a shell that generically is called a whelk. Imagine you're down at the beach and you pick up one of these large shells that you hold up to your ear and you can hear the ocean in Mm -hmm. it. It's one of those very large uh, shells. Uh, And the shell was actually fashioned into an artifact. It wasn't just a raw shell. It had been made into a cup. And there was another shell of the same species that had been made into a little disc ornament. It, It seems to me that the Saponi are adopting ideas from other cultures and making them their own. They're modifying them. They're, they're making it a Saponi idea, a Saponi cultural tradition that we're seeing at, at sites along the Stanton River that we don't see in other places. And that's, that, to me, is really intriguing as well. So these, these shell artifacts are just another indication of a dynamic culture that is engaging with its neighbors and 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 trading things over long distances, not just things, but ideas. What other pieces have you come up with at the site that have really captured your imagination? Well, one of the things that always gets me, and I think it gets the the, the students who work with me, is artifacts that, that where you can find a, make a real human connection to. And several come to mind. One is a pipe. Uh, so a pipe that you would smoke tobacco in, Uh, Everybody can associate or or recognize that and and know what happens. And when a student is cleaning it out and they they blow the dirt out of it, and and I say, you know, that's the first breath that's gone through that pipe since the the Saponi Indian who last used it 800 or 1,000 years ago, and it clicks. That's a very real, tactile, human thing. Uh, And so we have found some very interesting pipes um, we have a pipe uh, from, the, from the site that has a decoration that's made with a shark's tooth that's common along the Chesapeake Bay, but it's on a pipe shape that comes that, that's common in Georgia. And those two ideas are meeting at in our area. The Saponi are borrowing these ideas and technologies and making artifacts unique to their own their own culture. And that's a really hands-on, tangible aspect of, of a cultural tradition from the past that we can look at today. I love that story. The other one, Sarah, that, that's really intriguing is we very seldom find complete pots. In fact, never because they're fragile. But we find fragments of complete pots. But a number of times in this, in this area, uh, we have found what I call toy pots. 
and these toy pots are about the size of a sewing thimble. So they're really small, but they're, they're perfect replicas of what a full-size pot would look like. And so we've come to call them toy pots. And the, the thing that's really cool about a toy pot is there's a great deal of, of reason to believe that these pots are being made by children. Um, in many traditional societies, pottery making is the domain of women. And women are, are constantly providing care to their children and while they're doing these other activities that need to be done. And so I think that while the, the, the women are making the big pots, at some point they're engaging the kids or the kids are just mimicking what the adults are doing and they're making these toy pots. And so when you find a, a little thimble-sized pottery uh, shard or actually, actually complete pot that's, that's a replica of a full-size pot, that's been made by a child. At least I think that's a reasonable conclusion. And that's really cool because children often aren't the focus of archaeological research. We talk about the big things and the big people, but gosh, it's really cool when you can talk about a child. What do you love most about doing this kind of work? I believe all of us who are working in this are partnering or, 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 or engaging with people from the past. And to me, that's the cool thing. It, it's not the, the artifacts are interesting, but their interest only goes so far. To me, their interest is, is really in what they can tell me about a human being or a group of human beings, about people. And so that's the thing that I love is the stories that the artifacts can help us tell about people who lived some years ago in a place that looks different than the place we live in today, but it's the same space, if, it, if that makes sense. Over the many years you've been sharing the site and talking with Saponi people, what have you learned from them about their interest in this and in their history there? Every year I learn something new from the Saponi, and they're justifiably proud of their culture. They are a fully modern, contemporary group of people who are embracing their past in a way that's really encouraging. And I'm proud to be able to know them and to work with them and to learn from them. There's a give and take of ideas, and you, you learn new things about each other, uh, even though you've been working with folks for a long, long time. To me, that's really cool because it's a dynamic relationship. Well, Brian Bates, thank you for sharing your ideas on With Good Reason. Oh, it, it's absolutely been my pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Brian Bates is an anthropology professor at Longwood University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Dig sites, archaeologists turn up all kinds of signs of human life, tools, pottery, and remains. But prehistoric sites are also filled with ancient bird bones that tell us something about the people who lived there. Tal Simmons is a forensic science professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, but she also works to identify bird bones at archaeological digs. And she says the discovery of seven prehistoric bird bone whistles might be the world's oldest duck call. Tal, you had an early mentor who encouraged you to study bird bones, not just human <laughs> bones at ancient sites. Why bird bones? What did he mean by that? I think that his take on things was that by studying smaller animals that also inhabited the same space as early people, we would be able to learn more about how the environment was uh, around that site, how the environment was used by those individuals, um, learn about the season in which the people living at that site inhabited that site. You know, certainly in the Levant, Birds migrate regularly from Africa to Europe and back again. Um, and they do those in specific seasons and specific months even, specific weeks within those months um, that would allow us to maybe better pinpoint when people were at that site um, and also how they were using 
the birds either right. to eat or for ceremonial purposes or whatever it was. So how old is the site where you and your colleagues found evidence of flutes or whistles or noisemakers made from bird bones? It's approximately 12,000 years old, which is in what we call the Natufian period, which is really the time when people started to begin to settle down and stop wandering around the landscape on a permanent basis, um, like what we would call hunter-gatherers. They're not really agriculturalists. They don't live there full-time. They don't farm. They don't domesticate animals. But it's the beginning of that change. And where was the site? Where is the site? So the site is in the Galilee in Israel. It's called the, the Hula Valley. There used to be a lake there that was drained uh, in the beginnings of the state of Israel. Um, and it was a place where migrating birds would frequently stop. In recent years, they've started to reconstitute the lake, but for many years, it was completely dry. So what kind of bird bones did you find from, let's say, 12,000 years ago? I think we had upwards of about 70 different species, but primarily the site is full of ducks um, and geese and coots um, and mostly waterfowl who were using that lake as either you know a place to stop on their migration or just breeding there normally. Who in the world figured out that some of these bird bones seemed to have holes in them that suggested whistles and not just bird bones with holes on? Well, that is absolutely nothing that I can claim credit for, <laughs> somewhat to my embarrassment. Uh, about a year and a half ago, when I was back in the lab in Jerusalem, a couple of colleagues were there, um, Laurent Devant and uh, also uh, Chemi, and they were both looking at the worked bone within the site. And these are bones that people modified to some purpose. And they both noticed that there were several specimens of these bird bones that had holes in them. Um, and I must say that I may have noticed them, but didn't really make note of them because there are a lot of things that make holes in bones in archaeological sites. We have insects that can drill or eat into bone. We have all kinds of other animals that can do that. Uh, but they looked at them with an eye toward bone tools and realized that they were all made the same way. They had the same manufacturing process, if you will. Um, and began to pull out more and more of them until, in fact, they had found seven. So the, the largest and most complete one that we have has three holes, and it also has a mouthpiece. Um, there are other bones that have only one or two holes, and I think only one of the other uh, aerophones or, or flutes or whatever we want to call them, there's only one other one that has a mouthpiece as well. The rest of them are just broken, so we don't have the ends. How sure do we feel that those holes were deliberate? They're extremely sure. Um, they can show the methodology of how these people 12,000 years ago were scraping out these bones um, to form these holes, and also that there are other areas on the bones that show scrapings that might be like fingering positioning marks. So you'd like hold a finger over one of those and then you'll know, be able to have your finger in the, in the right position to close one of the other holes. In any event, they're all made exactly the same way. Did anybody suggest what they think the flutes were for? Were they musical or were they duck calls, that kind of thing? Well, originally, I think the idea was that they were musical instruments and that they were used in some sort of ritual purpose. It's kind of an, a catch-all phrase in archaeology. Uh, when we really don't know what something is, we always attribute it <laughs> to a ritual purpose. Uh, and so they, you know, thought that maybe they were either, you know, creating sound for ceremonies or creating sound just in nature. Um, and I don't think it was really until uh, Laurent Devant made a replica of one of these, the most complete one, uh, and then played it and recorded himself playing it, that I at least kind of thought that perhaps they were not that musical and perhaps represented <laughs> something else. 
<laughs> we actually have some sounds that were made from a replica. I found this online. Let's listen to it. <laughs> yep, I remember that. <laughs> It is definitely not the most musical sounding piece of <laughs> instrumentation that's out there. That sounds nothing like a flute to me. doesn't even quite sound like a loud whistle, right? Exactly. Um, I listened to it and, you know, people were discussing it um, in an email chat. And with great embarrassment, um, I must admit, I said, you know, to me, this sounds a lot more like the sounds of birds themselves rather than music per se. And, you know, maybe we should look into whether or not the sound that this is producing really mimics some of the birds that were actually found at the site and that we know were there at that time. Ooh, what did people say to that? The head archaeologist, I think, really picked up on what I had said. That's François Vallat. And François wrote another email and said, I think we should really explore this idea uh, and see whether or not they were used to imitate other birds. And, you know, maybe, as, as I had suggested, I think in my original note, you know, something like a duck call if you were trying to, uh, you know, attract another bird to hunt it. So how did they check that out? Did they listen to the sounds of birds that might have been in the area at that time? They did. I think they went through the whole file of the list of species that I had identified as being there. And, you know, we initially thought a duck call, so they looked at the sound of coots, the sound of mallards um, and teal, uh, because the bones themselves, these instruments, if you will, are made out of coots and teal and some other larger ducks that we couldn't identify. Um, and at any rate, they discovered that it most closely resembles the sound of sparrowhawks and kestrels, which are in fact two of the birds that were found on the site. I want to play those. Let's listen to kestrels and sparrowhawks. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, they sound like very high-pitched screeching, to be truthful. And so right. that's that's what I identified when, when they were doing the replica and playing that sound that, to me, it sounded like that. I can't claim that I knew that it was a kestrel or a sparrowhawk. But, you know, they really did their homework and went and listened to all of these bird recordings um, and superimposed, I guess, the sound profile of the... Um, you know, the bird bone flute um, over the sound of all these other birds and discovered that it was kestrels and sparrowhawks that it sounded most like. I don't know much about hunting, but wouldn't it have been easier to capture ducks and geese and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Ducks and geese make up the majority of the birds at the site. You know, they were definitely the people who lived there 12,000 years ago were eating them. Um, we have cut marks on those bones that show, you know, that they were detaching muscles and things like that. But we also have the bones of lots of different raptors, um, kestrels and sparrowhawks included. And for, you know, many, many thousands of years um, in this part of the world, people really valued these raptors for their talons um, and also their feathers. We think they were mm. using them kind of as, you know, personal adornment, jewelry, uh, headdresses or whatever it may have been. And, you know, there's also the evidence of the bones of those types of birds on the site with cut marks that show that they were specifically going after those talons and the feathers. Is there any way we'll ever know for sure what these whistles or, you know, duck calls were for? I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't transport myself 12,000 years back in time. Sometimes I wish I could. Uh, but, you know, it's our, it's our best guess as to what they were used for based on the sound that they produce. I just think it's wonderful. Tal Simmons, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Simmons is a forensic science professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Be 
Before a state road gets moved or expanded or utilities projects get started, a team of archaeologists comes in to dig for historical treasure. Elizabeth Monroe works on some of these digs for the state of Virginia. She explains how the discovery of a massive pile of oyster shells teaches us about the people who used to live in the area. Elizabeth Monroe is co-director of the William & Mary Center for Archaeological Research. We've been doing this kind of work since 1988, and uh, we've worked on uh, Civil War earthworks in the middle of the median of the interstate. Uh, We've worked on road widening projects, utility expansion projects. Um, And the thing is, we don't know what's going to be there. We often don't know. Sometimes we do. But often we don't know what's going to be there when the road is going to be widened or the pipeline is going to go through or the houses are going to be built. Uh, So we have to go out and look, go out and do an archaeological survey. Is it sort of like a treasure hunt for you? What can we find? What will we find? (laughs) It's kind of like a big game of battleship, really. I mean, we try not to think (laughs) of it as treasures because, you know, a lot of the things that we find are the things of daily life. I don't think anybody would consider it a treasure. Uh, Often it's other people's garbage from long ago. But it's like a big game of battleship where you go out and you... You might just do a line along a road or you might set up a grid in a larger area and you dig a hole. And if you don't find anything in the hole, you go on to the next hole. Uh, If you do find something, you you screen the dirt and you find some things, you might dig additional holes to try to figure out what, what the boundaries of a site might be. And the things that we find are the things that tell us when did the site date to and who lived here and what kind of site is it? Is it is it a farmstead or is it a small hunting camp or whatever? Was there a time when you did such a dig that you found something that delighted you? Oh, I get delighted frequently, but one site in particular... We were asked to do a project where uh, the Department of Transportation was going to be widening a road in sort of the northern neck area of Virginia. So this is uh, along the Potomac River. And they wanted to widen and straighten a road. And there was a bridge that they needed to bring up a little higher because it was threatened by uh, sea level rise. So they needed to be sure that when they widened the road, they weren't going to uh, have an effect on any archaeological sites that might be there. So we went looking to see if there were any archaeological sites there. And what did you find? Well, when we got there, you could see that there were oyster shells just coming out of the road cut. So we knew there was a big pile of oyster shell there. It's also an area where there's a seafood industry. So maybe the shell was from that. There's also a big restaurant down the street. So maybe it's from that. And so we started digging our holes every 50 feet. And for sure, there was a lot of oyster shell, but we weren't finding anything else. We weren't finding any nails or glass or or anything. And then all of a sudden, we got 75 fragments of native pottery including pieces as big as your hand. And a lot of them you could you could put together and kind of imagine how big the pot was. It was all from one vessel. And that was pretty exciting because it was a lot of nothing, 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 75 shirts from one hole. What did that tell you? Well, that told us that it was a big pile of shell from Native people coming down to this area. The kind of pottery that we found, it's called Pope's Creek pottery, which we know uh, dates from the Middle Woodland period, which is about A.D. 300 to about A.D. 1000. Uh, So we knew that people had been here over a thousand years ago coming down to the Potomac River and harvesting oysters. How deep did you have to dig through the shell pile before you came across that jackpot of 75 items? It wasn't that deep. It was probably about a foot into the ground. The 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 pile of shell, it's really a bunch of little piles that have all kind of merged together over time. And uh, as we were digging this shovel test, which is just a kind of a cylinder, you know, you take a spade and you dig a round hole and you go down until you can't go anymore or until you get what we like to call subsoil, like a clayey uh, soil. And so we were probably about about 12 inches or 30 centimeters down from the ground surface. If you dug deeper, do you think you would find that Native people had been adding and discarding oyster shells on the pile for even longer? Uh, well, we did more work at this site. The, our first job was to see if there were any sites that might be affected by this project. And we found one, and we let uh, VDOT 
the Department of Transportation know. And in the course of events, if a site is uh, significant, then typically more work needs to be done. And we've said, you know, we have 75 sherds from one hole. Uh, this is this is probably significant. So we went back to do more work. And that was opening up squares, excavation squares. And we were able to get to the bottom of the shell midden. It's about a foot and a half to two feet thick. And then you get down to soils that are very, very old before there were people in this area. So yeah, it was a pretty thick, dense pile of shell. There are parts of this midden where there's more shell, there's virtually no dirt. It's all oyster shells. And intermixed among all these oyster shells, there's animal bones and uh, stone tool fragments and pieces of pottery and burned plant remains all scattered throughout. You call it an oyster midden, that's a huge pile of discarded shells. Well, a midden is a is a trash trash pile or trash deposit, and the shells are the waste, right? When you're when you go to an oyster roast, you eat the oyster that's inside, and then you throw away the shells. So this was a place where people had been throwing away hundreds and thousands, and maybe even a million oyster shells. We moved something like seven and a half tons of oyster shells at this site. Did you find any pearls? No pearls. <laughs> So at your oyster midden site, what did you come to understand about the native people who'd been visiting that site and eating oysters for hundreds of years? Well, what we what we learned from looking at uh, all of the artifacts that we were finding, looking at the animal bones, looking at the oysters themselves, the, the shells themselves, um, uh, looking at uh, burned plant remains that uh, we were able to collect and process. Uh, we learned that people, native peoples, uh, for probably thousands of years um, had been coming back to the same spot on the landscape. We know when they were coming because we have radiocarbon dates, and we also have a sense of when people were on the site based on the kinds of pottery that they had. People have figured out when these different types of pottery, what the time periods they date to. But people were coming back to the same spot on the landscape to harvest oysters probably in the late spring or early summer after their winter stores were probably depleted, uh, but before any kind of crops or summer foods were available. The great thing about oysters is they're literally stuck in one place. They're always going to be there. If you are hunting, animals move around, things become ripe at different times of year, but oysters are basically edible all year round and are always going to be in the same spot. Uh, so this was a resource that people in the kind of hungry time, the lean time of the year, people could come back to this one spot and be almost guaranteed that there would be plenty uh, for people to eat. We think that they were probably roasting or steaming the oysters, and they probably were eating a lot of them right away, as I would. Um, <laughs> but they were probably also smoking or, or drying them for later use. While they were camped out and harvesting these oysters, which they probably were harvesting them by going out at low tide with baskets to collect them. But while they were doing that, they were also hunting and uh, maintaining their tools. We found lots of chips of stone from people sharpening their tools. They were probably hanging out with their dogs. We know that they had dogs on the site. We found the hip bone from a dog and also a lot of the animal bones had little chew marks that you know that you see when dogs are chewing on bones. But yeah, for, for thousands of years, mostly in this middle woodland period, which is uh, around uh, AD 300 to 1000. But we also know that people visited the site before then, a little less intensively maybe, and people uh, visited the site after then in what's called the late woodland period, which is around AD 1000 to the time of uh, European contact, just coming down every spring or early summer harvesting oysters. You know, Captain John Smith famously wrote in the early 1600s that he found oysters the size of dinner plates elsewhere mm -hmm. in the Chesapeake Bay. Did you find sure. any huge ones in your midden? We did find a couple that were quite big. You know, look at your hand, uh, at the size of your hand. Uh, we've definitely found a few that are that big. Uh, but most of them were more like uh, the size of the palm of your hand. And uh, most of the oysters we found, it because they were all kind of a similar size, or most of them were a similar size, we think 
probably people were, were saying, oh, yeah, this is a good one. And oh, this is a good one. Oh, this one's too small. Throw it back. And we also found uh, like most of the oysters that we recovered were kind of fat, happy oysters. You know, they kind of look like <laughs> hockey pucks. So people are picking ones that are going to be tasty. Uh, but we did find a few that were long and skinny. And uh, according to Julie Harding at Virginia Institute of Marine Science, that means there was something about the environment where those oysters were growing that was less than ideal. Like maybe it was really murky or maybe there was something about the oxygen level. So the these all these different kinds of artifacts can tell us a lot, not just about people's behavior, but also about? What was the environment like? One of the things we found, we, we collected lots of uh, samples of soil that had lots of charcoal in it. And Justine McKnight looked at all of the plant remains and told us what was there. And there was a lot of wood, wood from oak trees and hickories. So that's probably the kind of trees that were growing on the site. She also didn't find a lot of things like we, there was no corn. The time that most people were living on this site was before corn was a big thing in, in the mid-Atlantic region. There were a couple of little seeds. There were a lot of nuts, uh, hickory nuts, which is a great foodstuff that you can store over the winter. A few little seeds, but no domesticated plants. We try to get as much information as we can out of all the different kinds of artifacts that we find on a site. Elizabeth Monroe is co-director of the William & Mary Center for Archaeological Research. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to With Good Reason Radio. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.